Hey, you're listening to an Upbeat Rewind featuring Daryl Stinson on June 15th, 2020. Daryl is a well-renowned TEDx speaker with millions of views, speaker coach, mental health advocate, and best-selling author. And his message of owning your story will absolutely motivate you to take action and encourage you to really appreciate life. You're listening to an Upbeat Rewind featuring Daryl Stinson. This is Upbeat with beatboxer, musician, speaker, and show host, Parker Kelly. Daryl, thank you very much for being on Upbeat, man. I appreciate it. Man, I'm so fired up today. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> well, what I'm excited for this interview, you know, we're living in some some crazy times, and I think we're going to be able to dish out what what the world needs to hear a little bit, at least, hopefully a little bit. (laughs) Oh, absolutely, man. Get your pencils out. If you're driving, like just already save this one. This is one of those ones that you're going to want to listen to over and over again. (laughs) Definitely. Well, and it's largely because of your story. Um, Man, you have an incredible story. One that I I would think, you know, resonates with a lot of people. And before we kind of jump in, I just wanted to first off say thank you for being someone who's out there sharing your story, helping people. Uh, you're a true example and we need more of it in the world. And it's an honor to have you here on this podcast. And well, I'm honored, dude. You know, everyone has a story and, you know, uh, I think we got to do a better job of owning our stories. Um, you know, I do have one of those, you know, heart wrenching, tear drenching stories because, you know, the, the suicide attempts, but it doesn't have to be that to be impactful. People just want to relate. People want to know that they're not alone in this world. So I just encourage everybody on the front end of this, like whatever your story is, whether, you know, you were a super bad person and got saved out of like, you know, uh, <laughs> what's the what's the show that the, the Wolf of Wall Street, you know, whether you're you're, you're crazy story like that or, or I mean, you were just like angel perfect your entire life. Your story is important and it matters and share with the world. Definitely. I love that. There's already some gold right there, dude. I think I already have a title idea for the episode and it's own your story. Dude, that's love it. Bam. We're just hitting it hard, right? Like that's awesome. (laughs) I told you, man, let's go. (laughs) Well, and I'd love to kick it off uh, this episode off by learning more about you and Mm. your story and just kind of catching. I mean, I've looked into you by now, like a decent amount, but I definitely want the listeners to be caught up. So could you just share us, share with us a little bit more about you, your upbringing, your background, some of the things you've been through? Yeah. Um, my mom noticed that I was a really smart kid growing up. Um, you guys can't see me on the screen right now, but I am super black. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she, she put me in accelerated learning classes uh, so that I can um, really excel in education. And uh, that meant that I was the only black kid, uh, actually one of two black kids in an all white class. And I, and I say this part of the story, I'm gonna spend a little bit more time here than I usually do just because of all that's going on with uh, the the racial tension in our world. And, and I'm going to tie it home really quick. So, you know, it wasn't a problem for me. Like they loved me. I was one of the smartest kids in the class. They cheated off my test. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and they thought I was like funny. Like I was the cool bl- big black kid. They called me Goon, um, G-O-O-N. And uh, one day I was walking down the hallway and I mentioned this story in my TEDx talk, uh, Overcoming Rejection, When People Hurt You and Life Isn't Fair. But I'll I'll share some that I didn't share there for the listeners. I'm walking down the hallway 
coming back from a bathroom break and I noticed a group of black students circled together in the hallway, like laughing. And I'm, I'm charismatic. I'm outgoing. Like at this point, you know, I'm in third grade, dude. I didn't think like I was on top of the world. I had a big ego. And so I'm like, man, I'm about to get in on the jokes. Like I want to crack jokes on somebody. And so I, I go over to these students and I say, yo, what's so funny? And they turn towards me and say, you white boy. And I don't know what it was, but it just, it, it's, it made my heart sink. And I started to uh, ask around the school, like, hey, wh- why is, why am I being called a white boy when I'm clearly black? Keep in mind, I'm in third grade. Come to find out, I was known in our school as the black kid that talks, quote unquote, white. And it caused deep-rooted insecurities with me. Now, that's my story. Uh, for our listeners, <clears throat> yours might be something different, but I can guarantee you it probably started when you were young. Uh, we weren't born to question ourselves. I look at my daughters now, I got three girls and they are just like on 10, man. They are like, they love life. Like they have yet to know pain other than when I have to spank them. (laughs) (laughs) But there's something about the sting of rejection that makes you question your value, makes you feel like you're not good enough. And that, that was that moment where I thought that who I am isn't enough for the world. And it, it, that was where the seed of insecurity was, was planted. Um, I still kind of went through third and fourth grade and fast forward to probably sixth, seventh grade. I had a cousin whose name was Chaz. If I was um, in a in-person setting, I would say, everybody repeat after me, say Chaz. And then they say Chaz. Um, and I say Chaz was everything I, I wasn't. Chaz was uh, from the projects. I was from the hood. The projects are worse. Uh, Chaz had street credibility. I had none. Chaz had style. I had zero. Uh, Chaz had swag. I had minimal. And Chaz was in with the black crowd and I had no black friends. And Chaz's mom, Chaz is my first cousin. His mom, my aunt, uh, got shot and killed in broad daylight because she ended the relationship with another woman. And that changed my life. Um, Number one, I lost an aunt. Number two, Chaz came and moved in with me and he brought this whole circle of friends who in the seventh grade was already skipping school, selling drugs, doing drugs, having sex with girls, like just living a wild lifestyle. And here I am, Mr. Goody Two Shoes, getting all A's. So Chaz moves in with me and there's this pressure now. Do I fit in with my white friends or do I fit in with my black friends? Wow, what do I do? And I I started to feel really conflicted between the racial divide because I was white enough to go to my white friend's house, but I wasn't wealthy enough for them to come to mine. I was black enough for my black friends to hang out with me, but I wasn't black enough for them to accept me and not make fun of me the way that I talked. I didn't have their respect. They just hung out with me because I was Chaz's cousin. And it started to get hard to know who my real friends were because I didn't feel like I could be myself in either circle. When I was white, I felt like I was conforming. When I was around my black friends, I felt like, like I couldn't be myself. And it got to the point where, you know, you know, I, I would have to not go to the black, like there's these things that they call basement parties where people, um, you know, you, you, you go in someone's basement and it's like, Dude, it's like dry humping. Like <laughs> that's just basically what the party is. Like just dry hump to like crazy rap songs. And then on the opposite end, my white friends were having bonfires. 
<laughs> and when I would go to the bonfires, you know, I could go to the basement parties and vice versa. And there was always this tension. I was always letting one group down. Finally, it just got to the point where, you know, I had to decide which table I was going to sit at at lunch. And, you know, uh, my black friends were skipping school. My white friends weren't. And it was just so hard. And I had to choose. Like, I couldn't. I just couldn't live in both worlds. And I chose the black friends because I felt like, how can I turn my back on people who look my own color? (laughs) That was my rationale um, in the seventh, eighth grade. And I'm so ashamed to admit this part of my story. But uh, I literally defriended every white friend that I had. And I pretended that I did not know them. I walked past them in the hallway. (sighs) Dude, I haven't went there in a long time. Uh, It was so mean. (laughs) Uh, They would wave at me and I would just like act like I didn't see them. I started to make fun of them. And I completely changed who I was to fit in with this black community. I changed the way that I talked, the way that I walked, the way that I dressed, the way that I laughed. Like I even like like I even changed like the movies that I watched, the music I listened to. Like everything about me was just to fit in with them because I wanted to earn their acceptance and their approval, and it worked, dude. They loved me. I got street cred. Um, you know, I was in, but deep down inside, I knew that it wasn't me who they were accepting. It was who I was pretending to be. And I knew that if I was ever really myself, that they wouldn't like me. Income sports, okay? Sports became the vehicle that allowed me to not have to choose between my white friends and my black friends because everyone wanted to talk to me about sports. It was a shared experience. It brought us together. They didn't care if I talked quote unquote white or if I liked rap music or if I sagged my pants or if I wore a tight button up shirt. All they cared about is how many points did I score? How many touchdowns did I score? How, uh, you know, what the media and the newspapers were saying about me. And that was like freedom for me because sports allowed me to finally be myself. And not only that is it was a ticket to fame and acceptance and love and, 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 oh, riches, because I can get my family out of poverty. And I just fell in love with it. And I like to compete and I like to, you know, push my body to the limit and then push some more. Like I love the camaraderie and the atmosphere of sports and I fell in love with it. And I was convinced that I wasn't just going to be like Mike. I was going to be better than Mike. And I make that point because that's how bad I wanted it. And so uh, I get a full ride scholarship to go to Central Michigan University, actually to play football and basketball. Only ended up playing football because uh, the coaches thought, my football coaches thought that I was going to redshirt my freshman year. But when they saw how good I was coming in, they were like, psych. (laughs) (laughs) And so they didn't allow me uh, to play basketball. And me and the basketball coach like try to fight over it. But football is paying for my scholarship. So it was like, you know, can't really argue. And, you know, I, I'm like, fine, you know, my height is um, exceptionally um, rare in football, but it is exceptionally average <laughs> in basketball. So it's fine. I'll just focus on football, even though basketball was my first love. Still one of my biggest regrets is that I didn't play basketball. Well, um, I played my freshman year and then um, towards the end of my freshman year, I was trying to impress some seniors with how much I could squat. And I ruptured oh, a, no. a disc in my back. And I and I was such a tough guy that I didn't know the difference between being hurt and being injured. 
So I literally went months still having this injury that I thought was just a hurt or pain. And I, I was athletic enough that it wasn't affecting my performance. I was still winning all of the sprints, still like lifting, gaining, making gains, still doing well on the field. And so, you know, coaches just like, ice it up, you'll be fine. Well, I, one day I look over my, my left leg and I slap it because it was like kind of in pain. And I thought it was just like having a tingle. And it was like complete jello. I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> like my, my right leg is like muscle hard. And then my, my left leg is like jelly. And I'm like, what is going on? I go get an MRI. And the doctor said that I need to have emergency surgery because my left leg was getting ready to go paralyzed because of how much atrophy I had and how much nerve damage I had. Gosh. So the surgeon did, the surgeon was, his name is Dr. Shell out of Saginaw. I say, it cause he like saved my life because he was booked for six months, but yet he came in, I want to say on a Sunday and did my surgery like that weekend. That's how fast it happened. Cause he was like, dude, you're going to go paralyzed. So I have this surgery and, and my coaches are like, dude, you know, sorry, man. Like, but you have a, we're going to honor your scholarship. You get to focus on your education for free and you can come around football whenever you want. But for me, remember how much sports was my identity. It was my God. It was the thing that was going to give me acceptance, love, fame. And so it wasn't just what I did. It was who I was. So instead of receiving this gift of a free education, (laughs) free paid education, um, I signed a liability waiver to come to have an opportunity to play on the field without the university being liable for my injury or my death. And then I spent two years uh, rehabilitating my body, earning a starting position, but developing a drug addiction to opioid pills um, because I was numbing the pain to continue to play the game. Um, in addition to this, my personal insurance wasn't covering my medical expenses because they thought it was dumb that I was playing Division One football after, you know, after a back surgery. And then, you know, CMU could not pay for my medical expenses because that mean they would be like liable for me playing. So I had to pay for this out of pocket. I'm Parker. Have you ever seen a medical bill? (laughs) I have. As you're saying that, I'm getting like this anxiety, like overriding my body because I'm like that out of pocket. What? Out of pocket. I'm talking chiropractic fees. I'm talking about MRIs. Medicines. I'm talking about uh, medicines, which was the the minor cost. It was all of the scans and the epidural shots and the nerve killings and the acupuncture. And and I did all this stuff. And so uh, I did what a lot of minorities do. When they don't have the money to pay for things or you can't ask grandma and grandpa, I started to sell drugs. So I was selling drugs all throughout the state of Michigan. I got involved in an international drug operation. Dude, I never share this much of my story. Um, I got involved in an international drug operation where they were bringing, you know, marijuana and Adderall and, and lean and a couple other substances from, you know, Puerto Rico to California to Grass Lake to Lansing to, you know, Central Michigan where I was at. And I became this big drug dealer on campus. And for two years, I'm literally like, my life is out of control. I'm going to football practices, selling drugs. I'm going to uh, classes, selling drugs. I'm going to, you know, watching my film session, selling drugs, dinner, sleep, repeat, 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 repeat. When when you were playing the game, like, were you only able to play sports because of the drugs too? Uh, probably because I had to keep numbing the pain. So I had to like take a lot of opioids and get some illegal procedures done. So I got nerve killings multiple times, epidural shots multiple times. I manipulated the healthcare system so I can get extra, uh, you know, epidural shots in my bag. 
And uh, yeah, so uh, I had to do that. And, and you can even go back and watch some of my film. Like everybody knows when we beat Michigan State, that's like a real famous game in CMU history. And even like Michigan State, like they lost to a Mac, a Mac team. And you could see me get a, a, a hit on Kirk Cousins, the quarterback. And, and like I'm doing really good first quarter. And then I just like I'm really average the rest of the game. Well, what happened is my nose started to bleed because I was taking so many opioids. It was thinning my blood to where oh. I made contact and I feel my nose would bleed. And I had to play with nose plugs in my nose. But I was so talented that I was still better than the second guy. So they kept me in the game. And you can even see my film. Like, I'm running with a hunch. Like, I'm clearly in pain, but I'm just, like, trying to numb it out. Because in my mind, I'm just going to make it to the league, you know, sign my NFL contract, you know, be the best football player ever, play for a couple of years, you know, get out of this drug life, like, and just do something meaningful with my life. But um, going into my senior year, um, I, I got a permanent hunch in my back. My, I, my nose is bleeding, not just every game, but every practice because of how many opioids I'm taking. And the coaches is like, dude, we don't know what you're doing, but you're doing something wrong. And they, we got to let you go. And they kicked me off the team. And, oh, I was so mad. <laughs> Those were like earth shaking, oh earth God, shattering. Was That's, so that was your pissed. world. I was so pissed. And I had to live with the fact that I didn't have a plan B. And it wasn't that I didn't think that I could be successful at anything else. It was that I didn't think that I would be fulfilled by anything else other than sports. And, dude, I had no clue who I was without being an athlete because that was what my identity had got wrapped around. I'm like, you know, going back to where I started in third grade. I had changed everything about me to fit in with other people since the third grade. And when you study human behavior and psychology, that's the time when you've, your identity is formed and shaped. And so I'm just like confused about life. I don't think that I'm valuable. I don't think that I'm worth anything. People who actually like me and believe in me, I just think it's only because I put on this false persona, this like really confident drug dealer. And I'm, that's not really who I am. And, uh, it just sent me into a really dark depression. You know, I hated myself. I didn't think my life mattered. The only person that I would talk to was my girlfriend who I had planned to marry. Um, she was my high school sweetheart. We dated for four and a half years. And, uh, you know, we didn't have the best relationship. You know, she cheated on me. I cheated on her. But I, I thought we were going to be together forever. We had our kids' names picked out. And in the middle of this depression, I call her one day when I was having suicidal thoughts and I'm in the car. And I'm like, will you come see me? Like, I really just want to kill myself. I don't want to go another day. And she says, I can't, I can't. I'm, I'm sorry, Daryl. And she called me Daryl. And she usually calls me like, sweetie, your baby. And I was like, why can't you? Are you with somebody? She said, no, no, I'm not, not. But she, she wouldn't come and I knew it. Come to find out she had already been dating this other guy and she actually had got engaged to him. And so she was planning to leave me. Um, because she's going to get married to this other guy. That did it. That was my only outlet. I didn't feel comfortable talking to anybody else about how depressed I was. And so I just made up my mind that I was going to pay her back and, and get out of the pain that I was experiencing. And I started making suicide attempts. I would swallow whole bottles of pills, hoping I wouldn't wake up the next day. Uh, when that didn't work, I mixed the pills with alcohol and got in the car, just hoping that I would get in some car wreck that would end it all. And uh, finally, I get in this car one day and I write my suicide letter. I did a bunch of drugs and I'm like, this is it. I lit my last blunt. I smoked it. I turned my phone on silent and I start heading 75 miles per hour down a 35 mile per hour road. 
And I heard this little small voice whisper to me, Daryl, answer your phone. And I looked, it was my mother calling me. And I pick up the phone and my mom's like, I don't know how she knew. She said, I don't know what's going on. Will you please come to me? Up until this point, I had attempted suicide so much that I had went from 275 pounds to 219 pounds in four weeks. Because oh, I was man. trying to starve myself to death. I was in bad shape. I had been crying so much that my eyes were swollen, basically shut. I could only see just a little slit out the bottom. And um, there was something about my mother's plea that caught, convinced me to drive all the way from Mount Pleasant, Michigan to Detroit, Michigan, which was two and a half hours away. So I get to I get to my mom's house. Um, I was crying all the way there for two straight hours. I get there. I'm, I'm blowing my girlfriend's phone up to come see me. She won't even answer the phone. Um, I say my girlfriend, but my ex. And I get to my mom's house and she's trying to get me to eat some soup or something because she can see how frail and sick I am. And she's trying to talk to me and I'm just crying and crying. She can't help me. And finally, I, I, I fell asleep for about 15 minutes, probably just being completely exhausted. Um, and she went to sleep and I woke up and I'm like, I don't want to live. This hurts too bad. And I get in the car to go, you know, end it again or, or try to end it. And my mom heard the screen door slam and she runs out and she throws herself on the top of my car and she says, please let me get you some help. And I just said, yeah. And, um, I, she got, we got in her car and I just was crying really loud and hard. And, uh, she took me to the hospital. I didn't know where we were, which hospital we were at. I didn't know where I was just crying, man. And we go into, to this hospital room and, doctor comes in, he starts asking me questions. Uh, why did you want to kill yourself? You know, what was going on? And, and just facing the reality of how low and depressed I was and feeling how, how devastated my mom was. I just was crying. I just kept screaming, leave me alone. I just want to die. Just leave me alone. Let me die. After he couldn't really get much of an answer out of me, he, he left and went uh, to go file my paperwork to what I know now is to admit me to a psychiatric unit because I had attempted to take my life and you gotta, there's a law that you gotta stay like a minimum of five days. And um, a few moments later, something happened that changed the rest of my life. Now, this part involves my faith that that's okay. Yeah, yeah, that's totally okay. Um, what I was also gonna ask, yeah, how big of a, of a role was, I guess your faith during this this yeah. time, like when you heard that little small voice, yeah. um, did you recognize like, oh, this is like the Holy Ghost or like, was that just totally foreign? Yeah, it did. that wasn't even, nah, man. Like I, I had grew up in church and stuff, so I kind of knew of God or, or, or Jesus or whatever. But um, I had uh, pastors who uh, sexually molested a young girl in, in the church. And um, then one of the pastors who I looked up to uh, sold me fake clothes and I didn't find out that they were fake until I got to school and I got made fun of. So I just was convinced that, um, that, you know, Christianity and religion in general was just meant to control people and, you know, kind of all, all roads led to sin God and like, didn't matter what you believed in. And I was really like, I was atheist for like a week. Um, and then I, I was agnostic at that, at that point in the story that we're at right now. So I didn't have any foundation of faith. I just, you know, it's funny. They say, you know, everybody's an atheist until they're desperate. You know, like it's just kind of that, that like when you're desperate, like you, you reach out to a higher power. And so that still small voice, I didn't know what it was. 
I, I do know, I know now, but then I was just like intuition, you know? And, um, so yeah, that's where I was at. Okay. Yeah. Go for it, man. I'm all, I'm all for, um, faith and, you know, sharing, sharing the gospel. So. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, the next part of the story, um, you know, there's a woman, I call her the woman with green pants. Uh, the woman, the reason why I call her that's because that's all I could see is that she had on green pants. Cause remember my eyes are so swollen from crying and rubbing them that I only can open them just a little slit. She walks in, she says, I don't know who you are. I don't have any jurisdiction to be back here in this part of the hospital, but God sent me back here to tell you that you need to say yes to him. Wow. And she said, and I'm like, who's this lady? This lady's weird. Yes to God. What is that going to do? That's not going to take away my pain, my injuries. It's not going to bring my girlfriend back. And I just said, leave me alone. I just want to die. And this lady, my mom said, pray for me for like 10, 15 minutes. It felt like three because the whole time she's praying, like she literally grabbed me in her arms. And the whole time she's praying for me, I'm just screaming, like, leave me alone. I just want to die. She leaves. And a few moments later, my grandmother, who was like that church going grandma that like made you go to church when you were younger, like pinched you <laughs> give you two inches. Yeah. Uh, she had driven from Jackson, which was about an hour and a half from where we were at in Detroit. And uh, she, she had uh, burst through my door. She's like out of breath because she ran through the hospital. And she said, honey, I've been praying for you all the way here. God told me, you know exactly what to do you need to say yes to him. And it was the same request a second time from two people who never talked to one another. And so I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I, I couldn't deny that this was like a divine moment, but my heart is so hard. Grandma's a church going grandma. Of course she's supposed to say that. And so uh, I was like, I don't want to say yes. That, that's not going to do anything. Like God, grandma, that's your God. And I'm just like, leave me alone. I just want to die. And my grandma prayed for me for about five minutes. And I just kept saying the same thing. Just let me die. Just let me die. Just let me die. And uh, she backed away. And it was so heavy in the room. You, It felt like wet blankets was in the air. And no one had seen me this low. You could tell everyone was thinking, how did we let him get like this? Um, I had hid my internal brokenness behind my external success for so many years. And it was all laid barren in that moment. And I heard that still small voice again. And it said, Daryl, will you say yes to me? And it was something about hearing the heavenly father's voice that gave me the strength to just mutter out. Yes, Lord. And I promise the moment that I said, yes, Lord, the depression that I had been facing for months and years immediately left. My eyes got healed. I could open them and see again. And it felt so good. I didn't know what else to do. I just kept screaming, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. (laughs) That's awesome. The doctor comes in the room and he's like, what's going on? Because I'm yelling. And I say, I was running from God and I just put my faith in Christ. He said, all right, send him upstairs. <laughs> was, that like a, was that like a next True level story. unit so they, or they, something? They sent me upstairs to the psych ward. <laughs> uh, rule number one, don't tell people in the psychiatric unit that you, you, you were running from God. You know? 
And so, man, uh, cool story. One day, you know, we can do part two about, yeah, I've never shared too much with anybody about all the stuff that happened while I was in the psychiatric unit. That's a whole nother thing. And, you know, eventually I got out and knew that my life had meaning beyond sports and started to just get zealous about like, what's my purpose? Because to me, like surface level statements, like, um, you know, find what you're passionate about wasn't enough for me because I was passionate about playing sports. So I needed something deeper. Like what, why did I survive? Like, why am I here on earth? And so I mean, every, you know, Rick Warren, Simon Sinek, every purpose course that's out there, everything that's out there, I read and read and studied and prayed and meditated and asked mentors and self-reflected and journaled and talked to counselors because I'm trying to find why Daryl Stinson is alive. And I came to this place where I found something, a purpose statement that was really unique to who I was. And I started to go after it. And I got to this point in my life where I love my life so much that I wouldn't even trade it for my former life as an athlete. And I was like, how did I get here? And I recognized that there was five phases of transition that I write about in my book that's coming out in August. Who am I after sports? And, and this is a process we coach athletes through. Uh, there was five phases that I went through uh, to get over sports, discover my purpose, and start to build and live my dreams. Um, I started to share that process with others. That's where Second Chance Athletes comes from. You know, I got into ministry. You know, uh, I was able to express myself fully through music and and speaking and writing and just like mentorship and all this stuff. And and I do it. I'm I just love my life now. And I'm telling you, fulfillment is so underrated. Like it's it's become such a buzzword that I think people don't even desire it anymore. But I'm telling you, do not live this life unfulfilled because it's not just about enjoying life. It's about what you are able to give to the world when you enjoy life. Like the people that I'm able to impact with my message and my story and in my writing and my mentorship, because I found my purpose is amazing. Amazing. And uh, I'm just getting started and I'm super passionate, man, about helping misfits turn their pain into purpose and profit helping people build a legacy that lasts for generations to come. Uh, we've helped second through second chance athletes for the past two years. We have helped athletes go from sports to career. And now we're in the season of helping people go from career to legacy. And we're launching the legacy league, which I'm so excited about. And um, it, it, we're bringing industry experts to train people on their career, their finances, their business and entrepreneurship and their health, both mental, physical, and spiritual. And every week they train on those topics in three key areas. And this is good for the note takers, right? To be successful in anything in life, you need these three things. You need the right mindset, the right skills, and the right network. And so every week when we talk about health, we're going to talk about mindset, skills, network. When we talk about business and entrepreneurship, mindset, skills, network. When we talk about uh, career and finances, we're going to talk about mindset, skills, network, because that's what you need to get to the next level of your life. That's what you need to build your legacy. And dude, I'm on 10 about it. Like if you can't tell. So, <laughs> no, I can't. Uh, Definitely. So excited, man. Uh, that's the full version. I asked you before we started, like, what do you want me to focus on? You wanted my story. So you just got like the 30 minute version. Most people get like the five. <laughs> I think it's awesome, though. And I think it's something we need right now. 
as a world, as, as a nation, you know, and it's very, very uplifting and inspiring. And I love how well too, like with your story and then also with your plans with second chance athletes and your new book and like the whole legacy thing you're doing now, it all really like coincides with what I learned in your Ted talk as well, you know, about rejection and Mm -hmm. you just break that down. You know, you, you go from being rejected into, in the third grade and Mm -hmm. then all the way to where you are now. Like there's a whole story behind you, behind the person, right? And every person has their story. Every person's been rejected Mm -hmm. and you've turned it into something amazing. Absolutely, man. The the TEDx talk is is my life story. And um, I mentioned something in there that rejection isn't our enemy. It's actually our friend. It doesn't hurt our value. It actually shows us our value. And I believe that buried beneath your most painful moment of rejection is clues that can help you produce success in your life. And I actually got a like free rejection to success guide to help take that from like abstract to practical. Like, how do I do that? Like it takes you through like painful moments. And then how do I like find clues to produce like what I call streams of revenue in your life? Um, Give you an example for me. Okay. Rejection. Uh, I was the black kid that talked quote unquote and acted white. Okay. Rejection. Now flip it. I give you a lens to view rejection as projection or protection. For me, um, that rejection I felt was projection. It was those black students insecurity being projected onto me because they didn't like themselves. They made me not like myself, but in reality, they were actually right. I was the black kid who quote unquote talked and act white. And guess what? I still am. (laughs) And it's that versatility that has enabled me to be a high level leader that has enabled me to be an effective speaker. I can speak to executives and I can speak to people in the streets. I can speak to elite athletes and I can talk to recovering drug addicts. And by the way, I do it all. And it's all because I'm still that black kid that talks and acts white and scripturally I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And so like, that's just an example of how something that was really painful and a moment of rejection in my life has actually been a catalyst for success in my life. Yeah, that's that's just incredible. And I think that's very important message for right now because um, we all have that in us. You know, we all have our past. We all have our, our mistakes. We all have our trials. Um, mm-hmm. And we just need to kind of package that into, you know, the title of this episode, owning our story and turning it into something that's going to change the world and help other people. Cause I'm sure too, um, what you've been through, you know, has obviously been hard, but at the same time, I'm assuming that you're very grateful to be alive, you know, and that none of those attempts worked. Oh dude, I'm so thankful. Like every, like every day people, like the reason why I started this podcast off with so much energy is because I don't take for granted that I'm alive. Like people say it as like a cliche, like every day is a gift. I'm like, dude, every day is really a gift to me. Like, like I try to end the very life that I'm experiencing. And so like, I am, a, I say that's where second chance athletes came from. Like, because I felt like I got a second chance to succeed at life. And, and, and man, I'm just, I'm, I'm so every day is a gift. Every moment is a gift. And I, I value life. That's amazing. Well, thank you very much for, for sharing all this with us. Um, yeah. I guess I just have one more question before we yeah. jump into that um, upbeat seat segment. Yeah, yeah. For people, I guess, who 
are currently in those dark places. You know, there's a lot of animosity. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of craziness happening happening right now in the world. And to to whoever this podcast can get to, if there's someone out there or many people out there who are currently in a dark place in their life yeah. or a yeah. dark part of their story, yeah. what's what's a good, I guess, message for them or some advice for them? Pain is temporary and it will not last. One of the biggest lies of depression is that it will always be like this. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, it might be like this now, but it won't be like this forever. And so keep that in mind that, you know, for every dark night, there's a brighter day and uh, you'll, you're going to win as long as you don't quit. Hang in there. You've got this. Love that. Well, thanks so much, Daryl. Um, let's get into this this upbeat seat <laughs> segment. It's a bit of a transition, <laughs> you know? right. uh, but are, are you game for a few more questions? Dude, I'm good. What makes you upbeat? The fact that I'm grateful to be alive. <laughs> awesome. And I hear uh, that you rap. <laughs> you express yourself through rap. I just learned that go. from you. Uh, can we throw down something really quick? Let's do it. But before we do that, tell me, like, do you want like positive kid vibe or do you want like street, like street Daryl? <laughs> <laughs> um, let's just try both, dude. Half and half. <laughs> what kind Cheater. of what kind of beat do you want? Ah, dude, I don't know. Um, just do something. I'll tell you if I don't like it. <laughs> Okay. Rock with it. All right. I used to break it down and roll it up. I bet you know the scene. So many flavors could name them, just call them jelly beans. They call me serving. My service was flipping pounds of green. But now my purpose is certain. I'm here to serve the king. I had to die to live. Some call that resurrection. My Jesus cut me from the womb like a C-section. Too many haters around me. I tell them keep stepping. Got sick of bragging about my grain, so now I keep excedrin. They label me irreverent. I tell them not at all. My bars give me more energy than Adderall. At 23 and 63 when I was born a ball. I slayed the skin when my Jesus came and took it off. Too many people told me, boy, you'll never do this. You're like Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome hey, hey man uh I, i'm not gonna lie i couldn't hear the beat for like a half a second so i probably was off key um but but hey go check out um i've got two songs out uh one is called we all need hope uh, i wrote it for um really for kids who are struggling with depression and um i, I the real cool thing is i recorded it with my daughter who's five years old and i wanted awesome. it to set her free from everything that I struggle with. And so uh, really quick, I said, you know, we all need hope. This is for the kids who don't know. All they got to do is hold on. And that's the chorus. And then I say, hold on to your faith. Don't let nobody shake it. And if they talk about your clothes, don't even let it phase you. And if they talk about your looks, don't even pay attention. You ain't got to listen. They entitled to their own opinion. Here's what I discovered. It's the people who talk bad about everybody else do it to feel better about themselves, haters. So just be you and don't you worry about a thing. Them storms going to come, but dance in the rain. Keep your head up because life will try to push you down. Every smile is just a frown turned upside down. So count your blessings. You got the power to turn every loss into a lesson. So quit stressing because bad days don't mean that you got a bad life. And sad days don't mean that you got a sad life. Bad days don't mean that you got a bad life because you still got hope. And so, yeah, that's 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 completely free. You can listen to it on YouTube. Um, and then I got another song out called Defy the Stats. 
um, that's on like all streaming platforms. And I recorded it with a kid who had lost his mother to suicide. And um, it's about no matter what you go through, that you can and you will defy the statistics. And so you can just go ahead and check that out. That's like the street girl version. <laughs> who is your number one influence or inspiration? Other than Jesus, because uh, of course that's the the pastor answer, uh, my, my mom, because she might not ever have a big platform or be on a TEDx stage, but she was the one who I called when I was at my lowest moment. She fulfilled her purpose. Favorite sport and why? Basketball, because I was fire at it. And um, I, I adored, rest in peace, Kobe and Jordan. So, Favorite team and why? Was it, some, was it a team Kobe was on? Of course, Lakers. Because like when <laughs> Shaq and Kobe, I mean, it was just like, dude, like you'd be like, I actually wore Shaq's because I like Shaq that much. So Lakers all day. Awesome. Last song you listened to? I <laughs> do. I'm not saying this to be prideful. <laughs> was it your song? <laughs> it was my song, and it was. It's because like sometimes when I get down, like I, I, I like it's like self talk. Like I listen to my own music, and I said they labeled me a statistic. I think they missed it. I was selling drugs just to make a living. I was dealt a bad hand, but I still ripped it. I turned a couple of ounces into a whole business. You couldn't tell your boy nothing. I was so driven, trying to make it to the league, headed straight to prison. Ain't it crazy what we go through to get what we want? Why like creating the life we don't? It's stupid. <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah, I kind of encouraged myself with that. What's your favorite word? Uh, I don't know if I have a favorite word. Some people say I have a favorite phrase and it's watch this. But um, I do have like a favorite quote from Marianne Williamson. And there's a full version of it. But the short is like, our greatest fear is not that we are inadequate, but that we are powerful beyond measure. Love that. Favorite TV show? Dude, I don't watch a lot of TV. Um, so it would be like ESPN or Sports Center. But lately, me and my wife have been watching uh, uh, Superstore. I've seen that. I love that show. Yeah. The show is funny, man. <laughs> so yeah, and Brooklyn Nine Nine. That's my dude. That's my all time yeah, favorite show. show. I'm so mad that it's like not another episode out right now. I'm like super upset. So right. Well, and do you know if they're bringing it back at all? Like for I don't know. Seasons? If they don't, I'm gonna riot. Like. <laughs> I don't watch a lot of TV, so when I find something that I like, I like binge it, you know? And so, like, I'm like, bring it back, you know, like Parks and Rec. Yeah, so those yeah. are my shows. All right, the last two, um, what does music mean to you? Uh, and I guess how has it played a role in your life? Not just music, but all forms of creativity and communication. It's like psychologically undressing. And it is the deepest part of you being expressed into the world. Um, so man, I, I love music so much, not just to be a producer of it, but to be a consumer of it. Favorite social media platform and where can people connect with you? Yeah. Um, probably Instagram cause it's the easiest Facebook's getting messy and, uh, I don't like that stuff keeps disappearing on TikTok. <laughs> so Instagram cause it's visual and they archive, <laughs> right? You can follow me at Stinton Speaks. Let's connect. Awesome. Well, and then of course your website too. Uh, yeah. Second chance athletes. Mm -hmm. Sweet. Well, thanks, man, for for being on Upbeat. I'm going to send it out by beatboxing your name real quick. Okay. Daryl Stinson.
Yeah, <laughs> now I'm going to take that and use it as the intro to my podcast. That'd be awesome. This is Upbeat with beatboxer, musician, speaker, and show host, Parker K. Subscribe at parkerk.co.